Hi, I'm Jeff Watts, and I wanted to welcome you to the Renaissance Podcast. We are so excited that you have chosen to listen and join with us as we strive to reach the heart of our city with the truth and love of Jesus. And we know that God is doing amazing things in our community, and I am blown away at how many people have told me that Renaissance has provided a place for them to rediscover Jesus. It's given them a caring church family to be a part of, and has helped to transform their lives. If you're one of the men and women who have been encouraged, helped, and strengthened because of what's happening here at Renaissance, then I'd like to ask you to become an investor in what God is doing in our city. And here's one way that you can do that. Go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them. Enjoy the podcast and thank you so much for being a part of this community. Welcome to Renaissance, everyone. How are you? So great to see some familiar faces and some new faces. I won't point you out because you already feel weird. Right? It's awkward to be the new guy in church, but welcome. Thanks for coming. My name is Jeff, just so you know, and I'm one of the leaders here at the church. And one of the things that we love to do every week is to just study our Bibles. So if you have a Bible with you, we're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's a hardback black Bible underneath the seat close to you. You can use that Bible, and you can turn to page two in that Bible. It's like the second page. Genesis is the first book in the Bible, so you can read that there. We'll work our way through the, the bulk of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3. And one of the things that we're studying today is the culmination of God's creation. As last week in Genesis chapter 1, we saw where he created the heavens, the earth, the, soon, uh, the, soon, <laughs> the moon, the stars, the sun, like all the heavenly things, the, the earth. And, and this week in chapter 2, we sort of zoom in a little bit and we see a more detailed account of how God created mankind. Um, I would argue the pinnacle of his creation, right? The only creature to bear his image. I mean, dogs are awesome, right? But people are better, I'm just saying. And cats, not sure what happened there in a creation account. Uh, there's always one. So anyways, um, but we're zooming in a little bit on the creation account where he, he creates mankind. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we'll see a... A terrible event takes place, and it's an event that impacts the rest of humanity. Um, it is through this one event that, that we call the fall, where sin and or disobedience came into God's perfect creation. And it's had a lasting effect onto each one of us personally, not just those first creatures, Adam and Eve, in, in the Garden of Eden, but it's impacted us as well and our relationship with God. But in, in all of this story of Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3, I need you to hear this. This story today will be a framework or a groundwork for all future Bible study that you'll ever do ever in your life. If you ever pick up the Bible again, you must read it through the understanding of Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. I heard it said this way, that, that these two chapters is the picture frame, right? That, that every other story in the Bible is placed inside of. In fact, without this understanding of the creation of mankind and the fall of mankind through sin and disobedience, that the rest of the Bible seems strangely out of place. It's a myriad of moral lessons and strange animal sacrifices and strange uh, even historical accounts all contained in 66 different books in one book, the Bible. But if you don't you don't see it in the framework of God's creating mankind and God's dealing with the, the sin and disobedience of mankind, then you'll miss it all. I just want you to know that is what I believe Jesus wants us to understand, that all of scripture is about him, 
And so when we're studying scripture and we're studying Genesis chapter two and chapter three, we're looking for Jesus in the story. That when God deals with sin and disobedience in chapter three that we'll see in a minute, there's something special that takes place. Yes, God moves quickly to judge them and it's, it's challenging when we begin to read the words of God as he speaks to man and woman. But there's this thread of hope It's a picture of grace, a hope of redemption and restoration that is sort of woven in the tapestry of all of Scripture and I would even argue into our lives. That looking back in in my life, I can see God's hand at work, right? Many people might argue this before they became a Christian. Just real quick, just I, I don't do this often, but by a show of hands, how many people became a Christian later in life? Like in your 20s, maybe 30s? Right? There's a few of us. You might remember that. See, I can, I can look back um, into my pre-Christian life, and I can see specific moments where God was uh, arranging my direction, where he was coming in and he was speaking to me. It's strange, I know, but he was talking to me in a way that, that I understood because God desperately wanted me to catch a hold of this idea of restoration. God desperately wanted me to understand this um, theological concept of grace and mercy that God extends to us. But see, all of that is rooted in this story in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. Moses, the author of Genesis, is uh, writing to the people of Israel just by way of reminder as they're in their exodus. They're making their way from slavery in Egypt. God has rescued them. They're meandering through the desert, going to the promised land. It's promised because God has promised it to them. They have to just make their way there. And on their way there, they find themselves at a mountain called Sinai. Moses goes up. God gives them the Ten Commandments. So they already understand how this relationship with God works. They understand the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots. They understand sin, and they understand the effects of sin uh, amongst them. They've seen some crazy stuff happen because of sin. And it's in the middle of all of this that Moses comes and tells them the story of the original sin. Because it's so easy for us to look upon God, the judge of sin, and forget um, that it wasn't his idea. <laughs> that it was, it was not his idea. It was, in fact, mankind's idea to disobey him. That's why sin entered the world. It wasn't because of God, but God moves quick to judge. So uh, Moses helps us see God in a new light in these two chapters. Uh, we see him in verse 7 as a potter. Uh, a craftsman, if you will, who fashions mankind out of the clay of the earth, the dust of the earth, uh, breathing life into them. And in chapter 8, we see God, verse 8 rather, we see God as a horticulturalist or gardener, however you want to say that, whichever is easier for you. And he's a gardener in, 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 in verse 8. And, and later on, we see him as a sculptor as he takes the um, rib from Adam and fashions woman Eve out of his uh, side. Uh, chapter 8 and uh, chapter 3, verse 8, sorry, we see God as a a person, a, a real person who walks in the garden with his creation. Uh, Moses adds this point that it's in the cool of the day. It's that part, I always picture like the summer afternoons when the sun is starting to set and those beautiful colors are exploding on the horizon. Who appreciates sunsets, anyone? I always, always think of this. I'm like, God didn't have to do that. He didn't have to, but he did. He, he did. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And I picture God sort of uh, sauntering through his created things, looking for Adam and Eve and spending time with them. We see him as a person. And then lastly, at the end of chapter three, we see him as a judge, that he bangs the gavel of justice 
He doesn't seem to debate whether he should do it or not. He moves quickly to judge when people sin. Um, and it's in that um, it would be easy for us to begin to push God away as some cruel taskmaster. But hear me, even in his judgment, he shows grace and compassion. And I hope that's what we see tonight. So um, all of that being said, um, can we pray? And then we'll get started. It'd be awesome. Lord, I'm overwhelmed with um, thankfulness. I was praying this morning uh, with some friends of mine, and one of the first things that a friend of mine said was, um, God, I'm so grateful. And he just began to speak about things in his life. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I need to be reminded to be grateful. <laughs> so I'll start tonight, Lord, help us to be grateful for what you've done for us. For everything, the mysteries that we might not even understand, but you are still working in our lives and, and through our lives, and we're thankful for that. Uh, we, we turn praise back to you and, and um, thanksgiving back to you, and we, we just appreciate all that you've done for us. We thank you, Jesus, for your giving the Holy Spirit, that we might have the very presence of God amongst us and in us, the power of God, the one who can speak to our mind in a way that we would understand the one who can soften our hearts to hear the good things about God. And, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit. And, and Lord, we just thank you for each person here that we've come to gather and to worship together as a family, brothers and sisters called the bride of Christ, all one family longing for the day when Jesus returns and we get to spend eternity with him. So God, we just ask that you bless our time together. Um, this night would be beneficial to us, helpful to us, and would be a blessing to you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Having preached this already two times today at the 9 and 1045, I can tell you this. It is the most challenging thing I think I've done. There's a lot of verses that we have to get through. But we're trying to take like a 30,000-foot view of it, so we just just occasionally talk at a few verses. And, and after the service, you might think, man, I wish you would have spent more time on this. And I will say, yes, I agree. I wish I would have spent more time on that. But I, I don't have much time. So I just want to hit some highlights here. So we're going to be jumping around. They will put the words up on the screen. You can follow along. But let's start in verse 7, where we see God as this, this potter who's making man from the earth. Verse 7 says that the Lord God had formed the man or Adam, out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. I love that. In, in Israel's wandering through the desert, um, they would run into other nations, neighboring nations that had kings and rulers over them, and many of these nations, Egypt, for example, had the idea that their kings or leaders were in fact gods. Uh, pharaohs were considered to be God incarnate. And, and Moses wants to settle God's people, that there's really no fear to have about God's people, uh, especially their kings, because they are no different than you and I. He says quickly in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, that God created all of mankind the same way. He fashions each of us, or uh, the, orig the origin of mankind, out of the dust of the earth and gives it life through his breath only. Those people who claim to be gods, who lead other nations, are nothing but dust like you and me. And, and secondarily, know this, that we as Christians need to understand what Paul the Apostle wrote in Romans chapter 1, that we mustn't worship created things, but we only worship the creator. And I say that because... Mankind is created. Hear me. We do not worship other people. <laughs> Husbands and wives, listen. 
You do not worship your spouse. You don't. God has graciously given them to you, but your joy and your, your, your sense of um, livelihood or well-being or all of these things don't emanate from that person. Life comes from God alone. And to place that expectation upon your spouse or maybe your girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, or here's one, oh my gosh, for parents, your children, we, we definitely live in this age where parents almost worship their children. And I mean, not spoiler alert, the idea is at some point they turn 18 and they move out of the house. <laughs> Amen? Yes, yes. All the parents better not or we're going to have a counseling session afterward. <laughs> yes, the answer is yes. And, and, and oh, how we will feel some way when our idols get in the car and drive away. When all of our life just revolves around them and isn't centered on God. So Moses says, listen, everyone, pay attention. All of mankind is fashioned out of the dirt. And if you're going to worship something, worship the guy who fashions stuff out of the dirt. Worship God, not created things. But he breathes into mankind's nostrils the breath of life. He doesn't do this for any of his other creatures. We don't read about this through Moses, that he did this for animals. Right? He just did this for mankind, and, and it's, it's this picture that God uses his spirit. The same word for breath is the same Hebrew word for spirit, ruach, and it just means that God like, imparted his spirit to animate mankind. We are special and unique from all of the other animals. Again, I wish I could spend more time in that. There's a huge sermon right there. Um, but we'll just know this, that God created each of us um, differently than everything else. And then in verse 8, it says that he, um, God plants a garden in Eden in the east, and there he puts man whom he had formed. So I've been a Christian 20-some years, 22 years now, I think, and um, I've read through the Bible a number of times, as have many of you. And I don't know about you, but there's many times when I'm rereading portions of Scripture that I've seen before, but I seem to have a new understanding in it. You ever done that before? You read something, and you're like, I've never seen that before. And I don't know if it's just because I'm so dense and I didn't catch it the first time or there's something special about the word of God, which I sort of lean this way, that there is something special. Well, maybe the other two, but, but I, there's, there's something special about the word of God that when you read it, that God can illuminate some things to you that you've never seen before. Now, I'm saying all of that to say this, that when I was reading this verse eight, I saw something I'd never seen before. God creates the garden of Eden inside of Eden. I'd always had this picture that Eden was the garden, and that's not the case. And I'll, I'll come back to this in a minute, but see this. God creates the world, and in the world, he places a land called Eden, and within Eden, he plants a garden, a small, intimate place. The Bible tells us that it's walled around, right? It's, it's a picture of paradise. It's utopian. It's beautiful, but it's more than that. It's the place where God's presence dwells. So hear this. Of all the earth that God created and the land of Eden that he also created, within that he's built this special place where he himself dwells. And he places mankind in this garden um, in verse 15. And it says that he puts the man in the garden to work it and to keep it. Now these are uh, 
Two Hebrew words that Moses uses again later in the Pentateuch, the five books that he's written, right? But he, when he uses them in that combination, work it, keep it, work it, keep it. The role that he had given Adam to do in this special place, this garden in Eden, the only other time Moses uses these words is when he's speaking about the priesthood, the Levites who care for the sanctuary of God. But there's something significant with what God has intended for Adam to do. He's to dwell in the garden with God's presence and tend the dwelling place where God abides. This is beautiful. So the priests, the Levites would do this in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is just a strange word that means tent. In Exodus chapter 25, as the people of God are wandering through the desert, God comes to Moses and says, make this tent, this dwelling place for my presence. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. But this idea of the garden or paradise is the place where God's presence dwells. In fact, all of the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. This is a nerd moment for a moment here. But all of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And about the second or third century before Christ, uh, 70 or 72 Jewish scholars got together and translated all of it from Hebrew into Greek, the common language of the day. We call this the Septuagint. You don't have to remember this. This will not be on the quiz. I'm just telling you this, right? But in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in, in chapter... 2 verse 15 here when it says that God put man in the garden the word that's translated garden is paradise that this place where God dwells is paradise and within paradise are all of these trees that are growing that God himself personally has planted and he says all of the fruit on them are good to eat and he says in verse 16 the Lord commanded the man saying you can surely eat from every Tree, say it with me, every tree in the garden, except for one. There's only one tree that you cannot eat from. Verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. He says, and for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Every tree is available to them, but for one. So picture this, paradise the way God intended it to be, has boundaries. Do you hear that? It has rules. It has regulations. There's a single rule at the time. But know this, we sometimes have this misconstrued idea that paradise is if we can just do whatever we want, whenever we want, right? That would be awesome if we could just live the way we want to live and no one telling us what we can and can't do. But that's not, in fact, what a biblical picture of paradise looks like. That paradise has boundaries, it has rules. And I'll go one step further. All of these, this rule, it predates the fall. It predates before sin enters into the world. This idea that we can do whatever we want and then we'll have paradise is an incorrect idea. And I show this example to you. What if everyone um, came to like a four? This is a horrible example, but it's all I can think of, so forgive me. You okay? So anyways, <laughs> so, so there's a four-way stop and all the cars are coming together, but there's no stoplight or stop sign. And the idea is that everyone can kind of go when they want to go. But, but we think back to like driver's ed and when we were 16 and they're like, yeah, but the car on the right gets to go first and we take turns and this and that. But what if there was none of that understanding? If you just went when you wanted to go, you could quickly see how this intersection would devolve into chaos. 
If everyone gets to choose what they want to do and live with no restrictions and no rules, how is that possibly going to be paradise? It, it just can't be. It just cannot be. And I find it interesting, um, and we'll spend a minute talking about this, that the one tree that God forbids them to eat from is still the one that we desire today. This tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We, we desperately want to be the ones to choose what is good and what is evil. In fact, our culture is rampant with that, that we want to decide what's right and what's wrong. Don't you tell me with your archaic book of ancient scrolls and writings of this Hebrew God Elohim or whatever, don't you tell me what's right or wrong? You, you can't come into my life and tell me what's good and what's bad. I don't, I don't need to hear that from you. And that seems to be the, the refrain in our culture. Would you agree? No one wants to have this sort of standard placed upon them. I, my friends, will choose my way. I will tell you what's right or wrong. The problem with that, <laughs> I'll speak about myself for a minute, is I would never want to be the guy who chooses what's right and what's wrong. I know me. I say this all the time here, but no one in this room has lied to me more than me. I am the most fickle person you've ever met. I'm strangely, well, all right, my wife is sitting right here, I'll be careful. But there, there's no way I would get to choose what's right and wrong because my, my, my feelings and my opinions change almost daily. I could lash out against someone because they've done something against me, and I could say, I'm justified in doing so. This is right for me to do because you don't know what they've done to me. And I'm beginning to make my own standard of right and wrong. And, and you could quickly see this is horrible. It's a horrible idea. Here, here's what I think we should do. And I say this, um, confessing to you that maybe I don't do it as well as I should. I think we should let God choose what's good and evil. I think we should let God have the final say in all of those things, and we should just learn to obey what he says. Yes? Oh. Sam was praying earlier. She's like, I pray that we hear what God would say to us, even if it stings a little bit. Is that one of those things that stings a little bit? Okay. You, you're awesome. I know. I know. You are awesome. But you are not the creator of everything. There is a person who fully understands how it all works. And if, if I were you, I would let him choose what's right and what's wrong. He says, if you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then you will surely die. And the, the, the story becomes tense. It's, this is, <laughs> I think, in, in movies and film a lot. And this is that moment in the story where the music starts to get a little more intense, right? It's as if God himself has taken a pistol, loaded it with a clip, chambered around, set it on the table in the room. And says, I'll be over here for a while. Don't touch this. He places mankind in a garden with everything they could possibly ever want. And one tree that's so dangerous, it could kill them. And, and then he leaves them at, at it and says, okay, I'll be over here and walks away. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, whatever is going to happen. Like you could feel the tension. And then... And then Moses like just changes the channel on us and he, he goes to a completely different story. We have to wait for a moment to see what happens. Verse 18, it says that God looks at mankind 
Adam in particular and says that it's not good that man should be alone. And he says, I will make a suitable helper for him. Verse 21, skipping down. So God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he had made into woman. And he brings her to the man. And it says in verse 25 that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I know there are children in the room, so we'll just giggle at that. <laughs> they're naked and they're not ashamed. And all the little kids are like, what's happening? <laughs> and some of you, this is a joke. I want you to hear it as such. Some of you might be thinking, yeah, because God hasn't invented carbs yet. That's why they're naked and unashamed. <laughs> yes. Got him. <laughs> yeah, there's no such thing as a crumb top donut in heaven. <laughs> Of course, they're unashamed and naked. But I need you to hear this. It's it's not it's not. You go. All right. I got all night. It's fine. It's not. Moses isn't writing this detail for us because they're just fit, young, and healthy, or something. I want you to hear this. There's a Hebrew idea. Um, in their mind, that nakedness is always associated with guilt. You remember the story of Jesus when he's first arrested, and the first thing they do is they rip his clothes off of him. It's not uncommon for them to take criminals, right, parade them through the streets naked on their way to execution or on their way to prison, and they do so so that everyone who sees them walking would see a guilty man. That person's guilty. That person's she's Guilty, and, and Moses throws this significant detail in here. Just they're naked and unashamed. What he's saying is they're living, hear me, in the perfect presence of God in a place called paradise, the place that God had made Himself, and they have no guilt. Ah, this, my friends, is utopia. This is perfect. They had not sinned yet. Dun, dun, dun. Chapter 3. Moses turns the page and a new character is introduced to the story. It's a serpent. I don't have much time to go into this detail either, but hear me when I say this. This serpent is not just some snake, right? The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This serpent, the Bible tells us in other places, is in fact the devil or Satan himself. Now, how he takes possession of a serpent is he... I don't know. Is it, is it the devil himself or is he just inside the snake to me? doesn't matter. Know this, that the, the temptation that will come to the woman that God had created out of Eve through the serpent is the devil himself speaking. And the devil comes to Eve in verse 1 of chapter 3. And he says to the woman, Did God actually say, actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Remember earlier he said you could eat from every tree in the garden. And the devil does what the devil does well. The father of all lies, he begins to distort the truth of God. God said you could eat from every tree except for one. And he comes in, but God did not say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden. And, and the woman gets somewhat confused by this in chapter, verse two, sorry. And she says, no, we can eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but there is this strange thing that God had said, you shall not eat from the tree of the fruit that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. And she adds this sort of disclaimer to what God had said. And God did not say that. Now, granted, Eve was not there 
when God said this to Adam. So either Adam screwed it up or something is a, a, something's happening here. I'll blame the husband. I'll just throw it out there. I don't. <laughs> Easy. All right. So anyways, so he says, we, we can't even touch it. And then the, verse four, but the serpent says to the woman, well, but you won't die. I mean, that's a little hard, don't you think? God who created all of this and it's perfect, it's beautiful. There's no way God would harm you. You're not going to die from this thing, although that is exactly what God said would happen. He says, you won't die. In fact, he says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened, and you'll be like him, and you'll know good and evil, etc. And, and again, this is the desire of a culture around us, is that they desire to have their eyes open. This is the bill of goods that's oftentimes sold to people who, who don't truly understand the goodness of God, that somehow God is withholding something from you. Man, I'll, and I won't even say this like, okay, this would be, this is way off note, so just let me do this, because I think it's special for tonight. But um, this isn't just for people that are outside the church or outside Christianity that are maybe on the fringes. I would like to say dipping their toe in the waters of Christianity. I'm not just talking about that, but there's this idea even within Christianity, the deep waters of Christianity, that somehow God's withholding things from you too, if only you prayed more. If only you devoted yourself more. If only you disciplined yourself more. If only you this, if only you this. If you rubbed the lamp the certain way, then God would. And it's like, I think this is the wrong idea. This is the language of the devil. Your eyes will be opened. See, God's withholding something from you. Lovingly, I say, he has given us his son, Jesus. He's withheld nothing from us. Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit. He, <laughs> he has withheld nothing from us. That idea is diabolical and of the pit of hell. Sorry. Moving on. <laughs> Will you agree with me in that? Yeah. yeah, it has to be. It has to be. So he says... Um, You'll be like God. So anyways, he begins to distort God's word a little bit and a little bit. Eve gets caught up in all of this, and um, we read that she eats it. She takes the fruit of this tree that God had forbidden and begins to chew. Now, some would argue that the first sin, the original sin, was in fact not Eve eating of the fruit, but her husband not stopping her. That the first sin was actually the sin of omission, that the husband... Right? And I somewhat agree with this. The husband should have intervened. He should have smacked it out of her hand and said, no, God said don't do this. But Adam, he's, he's there. Moses tells us this. He's, he's standing right there, but he doesn't intervene. Just as an aside, wishing I could spend more time here. Husbands, if you're in the room, pay attention. Oh. Pay attention. You know, you do have a specific charge over your wife. And there might be things that you see your wife grabbing a piece of fruit that you know is not good. And, well, yeah, you need to jump. <laughs> you need to go ninja on this thing. <laughs> so my wife is here. 
Eve eats, she hands the fruit to her husband. Adam eats. And in verse 7, Moses tells us that they see their nakedness for the first time. What is Moses saying? He says they see their guilt. They've disobeyed. They've broken the command. (laughs) The one thing that God said, don't do. Verse 8, it says that when God come walking in the garden that day, that they hid themselves. Covered themselves with fig leaves, whatever that looks like, right? And was hiding from God. And God just lovingly calls out, where are you? Hello? Anyone home? As if God doesn't know that they're hiding behind a bush, right? And they come out and they, they admit that they had sinned against God. And with, with no moment for consideration, God brings down the gavel of justice and judges. He doesn't debate with them. He doesn't uh, talk it through with them. He doesn't, right? I mean, there's just some stuff that happens. He, he, he begins to speak to Eve. Well, I guess he gives, does talk to them a minute, but, but you know, she blames the serpent or Adam. Adam blames his wife. The wife blames the serpent, et cetera. And then God judges them. Now hear this. In verse 14, um, God, I don't know what this looks like, but Moses informs us that the serpent is still there somehow. I don't know what this looks like, but the serpent is there with Adam and with Eve, and God begins to speak. And when God speaks, he speaks first to the serpent, and we see something that God has never done before. He curses. He curses. In Genesis chapter 1, he creates, he blesses, he blesses, he blesses, sets it apart, calls it holy, all of, this, all of a sudden. But now through disobedience in the, word, in the world, God curses the serpent. And he says, you'll slather around on your belly all of your days. You'll eat dust. There's this thing called enmity between his offspring and the offspring of Eve. I don't have time to go into that. It's beautiful and wonderful. It's a picture of who Jesus is. We won't have time anyways. But he curses the serpent. Then he turns his attention to Eve. Now, I love this, but he doesn't curse Eve. He punishes her. He doesn't curse her. He says, you, Eve, will still be the, the mother of all the living. Right? And she will continue to have babies. But he says, now your childbearing will bring forth pain. And this is not just the birth process. I need you to hear this. But for mothers, this is the pain of children um, being in the family. I, of the many mothers that I've talked to, the one thing that can keep them up at night is the thought of a, a son or a daughter being wayward, who've drifted away from them. I can see even mothers nodding to me now that that is a painful thing for them. God will still use Eve in his created order, but she will suffer pain for it. And also says now, rather than working side by side with her husband, equally yoked, if you will, she will want to lord over him. She will try to usurp his authority. He will try to rule over you and you will try to rule over him. And now this sort of disconnect in the family unit of husband and wife exists through disobedience. This is a result of sin and the fall. And then lastly, he turns his attention to Adam. And he says of this earth that you were intended to work and keep, right? The the sanctuary of my dwelling place. You know, he, he banishes Adam and Eve from the garden. And now he says the earth that God has cursed as well. He's cursed the ground out of, out of it. Thorns and thistles will grow. And he tells Adam, now out of the sweat of your brow, will you find food? When in this garden place, it was perfect. Just go pick it whenever you wanted, but now you have to toil for it and work for it. And then lastly, the most painful of all, and he looks at Adam and he says, and to dust you shall return. Oh my gosh, do you hear this? 
The created order of everything that God had made, good, 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 very good, places mankind in the middle of it through their disobedience. It has the potential to just blow away with a strong wind. To dust, he says, through your disobedience, you shall return. Verse 23, it says that therefore the God, the Lord God had sent Man, him, Adam, out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground for which he was taken. Verse 24, he drove out the man. This was not a suggestion. Go. I, I, I'm thinking to Jesus in the tabernacle when he was, or the temple, when he's driving out the money changers with a whip. He says, you have to go. And he sends them out. We continue to read this. He drives them out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he places cherubim. <laughs> Say that with me. Cherubim. Isn't that fun? I don't know what that is. Cherubim. They're like, like angelic beings. He places these, these ginormous angelic beings at the gate of the garden with a flaming sword and prevents Adam and Eve from ever entering the garden again, from ever entering God's presence again. And there they stood. I mentioned earlier in Exodus chapter 25 that Moses had spoken to God and God had told him, I want you to build a tabernacle, a tent for me. And this tent we call the tent of meeting. And, and God says in Exodus chapter 25 that this tent will be my dwelling place amongst the people. So something unusual, it's mysterious, I don't know what's happening exactly, but God's presence was in the garden. Mankind has been banished from it to never return and now, uh, thousands of years later, God mysteriously comes back to be with his people. But he does it in a certain way. He says, build a tent for me and make it big. And then take this bigger part, this outer part, and section it off from the rest and make a smaller part with inside of it. And then even smaller still put a, we call this, this is the outer courts, this is the holy place. And inside the holy place is the place called the holy of holies. And it's inside this place that God's presence would be, that God would dwell in the Holy of Holies, but it was protected from everything else by a veil. There's this veil or curtain in the, the, this tabernacle thing, and it was a fine linens, purple and blue. It's gorgeous, and it's embroidered, right? Hand embroidered, it's beautiful. And guess what it's embroidered with? Cherubim. God told Moses, don't forget the cherubim. You cannot enter my presence. You know this, but I'm willing to come so far with you. I'm, I'll come and be in the tent, and once a year, you can let the high priest come in, if he dares. This is so awesome. If once a, a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would make sacrifice for the nation of Israel and himself, I suspect slathering himself in the blood of dead animals. And he pulls back the cherubim and he takes a step in. Tradition tells us they would oftentimes tie bells to the, the cloaks of the high priest. In case um, he fell dead inside, they would just drag him out with a rope. And they could tell if he stopped moving because the bell stopped clinging. That these cherubim guarded God's presence in the tent for centuries. The tent become dilapidated at some point. Uh, at some point, a man named Solomon, the the son of a king named David decides to build a permanent structure for God and he builds the temple. The temple is built almost identical to how the tabernacle was. It's very large. It has an outer place, 
the outer courts where everyone could go. Then the inside, there's the holy place where only a select people could go. And inside of that, there's the holy of holies where God's presence would dwell. And again, the veil remained. In the Gospels of Jesus, Matthew's Gospel specifically, we hear the story of uh, God's son Jesus being punished. He's ripped naked, a crown of thorns, or stripped naked. He has a crown of thorns placed upon his head, and he's dragged to a cross where he, in my mind, willingly gets on the cross. Like, I, I can almost, I don't know why they nailed him there. He would have stayed there anyways, in, in my estimation. But it's on this cross as he's absorbing the punishment for the, the sin of mankind, um, something significant happens. The gospel writers tell us that, that as uh, Jesus is laboring to breathe, he famously says these uh, words, it is finished. And when um, he's done, Matthew records this in Matthew chapter 27, verse 50 and 51. Jesus cries out again with a loud voice, it is finished, and he yields up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Ha <laughs> Matthew adds the detail from top to bottom as if God himself ripped it. This separation that has kept you away from my presence, gone now. The effects of sin, the banishment of sin and his presence for all mankind has been forever removed. The temple was eventually destroyed in 70 AD. It's never been built again. For some reason, there are some Jewish people who want to rebuild a new temple. I say, why bother? <laughs> The presence of God has been loosed on the earth. The cherubim have parted. They've fulfilled their duties. God has called them back to heaven, whatever that looks like. No longer are they necessary. And no longer is God constrained to this little bitty place inside of another place, inside of another place. You guys, hear me. The Garden of Eden was that picture. It's the earth, Eden, the garden, the tabernacle, the temple. And the same could be said with our lives. The New Testament informs us that we are now the tabernacle of God. The very presence of God indwells inside of us. When, um, when Jesus had died on the cross and they put him in a grave, on the third day, God raises him from the grave. Hallelujah. And then he spends some time with his disciples, another 40 days or so. He's walking through walls. It's kind of crazy. Please tell me we get to walk through walls in heaven. I just hope that's a thing. I just hope that's a thing. But he just mysteriously shows up in rooms. In one of these accounts, he's standing with his disciples, and they're having breakfast. It's broiled fish, Luke tells us, for breakfast. What? And as Jesus is talking to his disciples, he begins to talk about this thing uh, in the kingdom of God. He calls it the peace of God. And Jesus is spending time with his disciples before he goes back to heaven, and he wants to tell them about the peace of God. It's this Jewish idea of shalom. And shalom is not just the absence of strife and or turmoil. It's the, it's the correct order of things. Let me tell you that the garden within Eden was shalom. It was peace. It was exactly as God intended it. And Jesus is talking to, to his disciples about this issue again. I'm giving you the peace of God. And in that, John's gospel records in John chapter 20, verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. God's presence in his Holy Spirit is available to those who believe. 
I also love that John seems to pick up on this picture of Genesis chapter 2 when God fashioned man out of the dust of the ground and breathed his spirit into him. That is what's available. Guys, listen, as God has created Adam to live in paradise with him, so has he made it available for us. We have no Mecca. There is no place that we go to worship him because he has come, hear me, to us. His choice. He chooses to tabernacle inside of us. Now, this changes everything. The world maybe has devolved into chaos. Maybe it is that four-way stop with no rules or whatever. But not so for us. Because within me lives the Holy Spirit. Inside of me is the very presence of God. Inside of me is a peace that I cannot explain to anyone else unless they know who Jesus is. Is this making sense? When God banishes right, them from the garden, it was still with a picture of grace and mercy upon them. You remember when Adam and Eve were, were clothed in fig leaves, right? Whatever that is. Everyone's gotten flowers for Valentine's Day and they look beautiful on day one, but day six, day 11, right? They're wilting and looking really bad. Um, before God banishes them from the garden, he says, oh, these fig leaves, they won't do. And God himself clothes them in animal skins. Before he sends them out into the rough, cursed world out there, he does something for them. Now, again, there's a whole teaching behind that. I don't have time to spend. But hear me. There's always been a picture of God's grace in our lives. He did it for Adam. He's done it for you. The question I think that we have to then wrestle with is what do we do back? Do we accept the gift that he's given us of salvation? Do we accept the Holy Spirit that he's given us? Do we believe that we have the power of God indwelling inside of us? Do we, do we live our lives from that truth? Or do we continue to strive after things that God is somehow withholding from us, which we know to be um, not true? In, in Jesus' name, you have, in faith of Jesus, you have the presence of God. There is nothing wanting or lacking in your life. In my mind, there was a much louder amen when I said that. <laughs> oh. Yay, Jesus. I'll pray for us. And um, if you're visiting at Renaissance, one of the things that we love to do is give time at the end of our service where the band comes back up and we'll sing a few more songs. And, and here's a wonderful moment for you to just really kind of contemplate that idea can really settle with yourself um, whether or not you believe that God is available to you or he's not. <laughs> you can spend these next few minutes. Um, I pray um, the breath that God has given us, we could return to him in praise, declarations of gratitude and thankfulness. We could bless his holy name.
Bible talks about that. Oh, bless you and everything that you've done. Lord, I've been one of those wayward sons that the Bible talks about, but you have been faithful to me, that Jesus has never abandoned me, and on and on it goes. This place could get really loud really quick with the thankfulness that we as people have. For the record, we're okay with that. (laughs) We're not doing church right if we don't say that's okay. So I release you to worship the way God wants you to worship. Sing loudly. Declare good things. If you have your children with you, put your hand upon them and pray for them. Husbands, grab your wives, confess your shortcomings. Apologize for not being more diligent in the sin of her life. Wives, grab your husband and say, I'm sorry for wrestling for authority away from you. I mean, get busy about reconciling with one another and with God in these next few minutes. And then during this time, out this back door and to the right, we have a a prayer room that we love to pray with people in. Maybe you're here alone or you don't want to talk to the guy you're with or whatever, but you want to talk to someone. We would love to meet with you and pray with you. Maybe there's a, a medical issue happening, a financial issue happening. Maybe there's just something going on and you don't know where to turn. I know where to turn. Let's pray together. So, all right, let's, let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you again for our time. God, you are creator of everything. We look <laughs> to no one else. We look to you first and foremost. We don't need uh, more discipline in our lives. We don't need... Um, to try harder, God, because you've done so many things for us. You've done it, in fact, all for us. We need to receive the reality of Jesus. So I, I pray in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that people now would understand the true nature of Jesus. That a sacrifice that has been given once and for all is, in fact, given once and for all. There is no more sacrifice needed. Jesus took care of sin on the cross. Through faith in him, we have been liberated from that. The veil has been torn and we can enter into the presence of God. And I pray that we do not waste it. In Jesus' name, help us to live victorious, peace-filled lives. Use this time, God, to uh, have birthed inside of us um, a worship and a thankfulness and gratitude that we've never experienced before. Uh, Turn our attention upon you and you alone. Uh, Put blinders on us, Lord, about the details and the situations on the periphery of our lives that do not matter right now, Lord. For the next few minutes, give us the power to focus on you and you alone. God, we thank you for everything that you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love you guys. Would you please stand? Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Together we can reach the heart of Decatur. And if you'd like to be a part of that, go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them.